Welcome to the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast, where we dive into the climate change crisis and discuss how technology and innovations can help save our planet. We're your hosts, Cody Sims and Hannah Davis. Join us as we talk with sustainability experts, investors, and founders about the issues we're collectively facing today due to climate change and how entrepreneurship can help. Tenzin, I'm really thrilled to have you on our Techstars Climate Tech podcast today as we talk about the societal implications of climate change, including critical issues like environmental justice, climate adaptation, and climate migration, and really contemplate how entrepreneurs should think about these issues. But let's start really by getting to know you. Could you share a little bit about your personal story and how that has led you to your work on climate with the plant? Absolutely, Cody. Thank you so much for having me. A little bit about my story. I am a native Tibetan, and my family had fled the Himalayas, dodging soldiers' bullets to make it to India, where we were resettled as political refugees. And growing up in the Himalayas is a really interesting experience because you really do experience nature right in front of you. I am a mountain person, and I always say that mountain people are the first to experience the impact of climate. Mm. And for me, when I saw the mountains changing literal structures every year, every five to 10 years, and even when I would go back after resettling in America, I noticed the changes. And growing up, I didn't have the language for why it was. So oftentimes when people don't have information or in the absence of information, people make mythologies and create stories. So I would hear stories about how certain gods are not happy with us. And so therefore they're unleashing their wrath. But I knew something wasn't quite right with that story. And so when I came to the States and I learned the term climate change in geography class. I was like, that is what's happening in those mountains. That's what's happening in our waters. That's what's happening there. And it's interesting how sometimes the pedagogical framework is not there for the people who experience the impact. So I made it my life's work to really understand refugee issues, migration and climate at the bedrock of it. And since then, I've been working on, on this issue of climate solutions and developing climate solutions. That's incredible. Given your incredible story and personal history, I'd love to start a little bit with the issue of climate migration. You just encapsulated that in your story. This is why climate change matters most. It's a most tangible environmental justice issue we face because it really is so extreme. I've read that today, roughly 1% of the world's landmass is in what's known as an extremely inhospitable zone. Think like the Sahara Desert, et cetera, like places that you can't live. It's very hard to live. But that over the next 50 years, as the planet continues to heat up at unprecedented speed, estimates are saying that those inhospitable zones are expected to expand to cover roughly 20% of the planet's land surface by 2070, so in just 50 years. That's unfathomable. (laughs) That's an incredibly gut-wrenchingly staggering number. And the amount of pain and suffering that this will engender, I, I can't even really wrap my head around it, honestly. And to me, it helps remind me like why this work matters. Regardless, we're venture people, innovation people. So obviously, we look at the innovation shifts and think about markets changing and this, that, and the other. But the human toll of this issue is so staggering. What I guess I'd love to hear you, first of all, just react to this generally, But also as someone who's lived through a migration, what do you anticipate that a mass migration like this will mean for people when it comes to security, food, shelter, health, 
both for the migrants as well as those who live in places to where people are migrating. I think you brought up such an important crux of this issue, which is that this is not a science-based issue. It's a human-based issue, and we should look at it that way. I think it is sometimes too stratified in looking at it from like climate change solutions in terms of numbers and data and emissions in the air versus climate change in the justice. I think all climate change is a justice issue. It is a civil rights issue. So when you talk about the numbers of migration, I've been saying this for over a decade, that there will be hundreds of millions of people who will not have a home because of the ways that countries are sinking, essentially. And last year was, Cody, a really important ruling in the United Nations, especially their Human Rights Commission. The ruling is that without robust national and international efforts, the effect of climate change is in receiving many states may expose individuals to violation of their rights, thereby triggering obligations of sending back to be unfathomable. And so this recent ruling that was only a year ago that the United Nations brought is really going to be able to give the credibility of the experience for climate refugees. And we're expecting hundreds of millions. And I think to some extent, that's even an underestimate when we look at the sea level rising. So I wouldn't even be surprised if it was over a billion in the next 40 to 50 years. A billion people without a home is an international challenge. And This potential landmark ruling is a game changer because it finally gives a step for climate refugees to have their lives be recognized and to be seen as vulnerable and to be able to have opportunities when their countries are submerged in water or when there's extreme drought. So I would like to see as a solutions oriented person is I would love to see more startups and companies develop dignified ways of integrating mass amounts of people. I would love to see dignified ways of policymakers and government officials also recognizing the rights of climate refugees and giving them safe haven, safe prospects. And more importantly, I'd like to see community members accept that this is a reality. Most Americans I talk to have absolutely no idea that there could be a billion people who will not have homes in the next 30 years. It's almost as if that's a foreign idea and I'm talking about spaceships. But I think it's important that we start grounding in this reality because look at where we are today with climate change. It certainly seems not only billion people without homes, but there's also going to be a number of people who can't leave for whatever reason and are left in incredibly difficult and challenging places that either are dealing with sea level rise or are dealing with the inability to produce food locally in a way that they used to do so before or dealing with lack of water locally. And it just seems like the only way that those types of issues get solved, ultimately, you you need massive international cooperation and government intervention. But I think you also need entrepreneurship. And to me, I feel like the kind of entrepreneurship you need is different. There's certainly tech-based, global, platform-scale level entrepreneurship can and will help solve some of these issues when it comes to large-scale decarbonization. But I also think that a lot of these solutions are local. To me, I've gotten my head really that there are two big entrepreneurial challenges to climate change. There's One, as I mentioned, the kind of global technology solutions to carbon mitigation and reduction, which is things like renewable energy innovation and deployment, the decarbonization of energy, carbon capture, et cetera. Things that are what you typically hear of as as clean tech or, or climate tech. But then I think there's this whole other category of stuff that maybe doesn't get the attention that it ought to, which is really local resiliency solutions to climate change. How do we localize supply chains? 
How do we really decentralize energy production and storage? How do we crowdsource financing? Are there cooperative ownership models? How do we reimagine the built environment? Each of these things may need to have its own sort of local flavor, depending on the geography. Do you think that's too simplistic? Or how do you think of adaptive entrepreneurship from a climate perspective? No, I think that it's not too simplistic. And I think that sometimes we overcomplicate the problem. Some of the climate solutions, sometimes I see the technology that will be tens of millions to capture carbon. And then I talk to an indigenous person from the Napa tradition, and they're like, why don't we just plant more soil? And that is carbon capture. So I think that we actually need to go back to the basics with a lot of these solutions. And and part of the basics means being local first. If you look at where we were 50 years ago, a lot of the driving factor of preserving nature was led by local communities. I've seen also amazing examples from young people in the local community. Do you know the two girls, Melate and Isabel? And and they noticed at 10 years old that the plastic problems in their region was becoming a problem and a challenge. So they created Bye Bye Plastics in 2013, which is a nonprofit that aims on banning plastics in the region. And they've noticed that every year, 8 million tons of plastics ends up in their ocean. And it was actually impacting their ability to be able to enjoy their water. And so six years later now, they've been able to form thousands of teams of volunteers to not only clean up the plastics, but also to ban plastic. They worked with the local government to be able to actually ban it. And so now you can't actually, in Bali, find plastics. You find alternative sources. And you have legislation that caters to this. Private sector finds solutions. There's always local solutions. And in this case, it was a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old who found it. I think we need to start looking to these examples and not dismissing young people because I've met many young prominent climate activists who've taken it in their own hands. I think of Kenya, for example, Wanjira Matai and Wangari Matai, who founded the Greenbelt Movement. And just planting a tree, you're more connected to the nature and your ethos and perspective on climate shifts. And it's really good for the environment. So I think that there are many examples like that in the local community that we can draw from and help other countries be able to meet some of these activities and meet the needs. That's so inspiring. And a question I have for you is, assuming the bulk of Techstars listenerships are people I would typically put in more the first camp I mentioned, like people who are coming at it from a sort of a traditional startup perspective, thinking about things from a technology lens first and thinking about scale, but knowing that there are all these local solutions out there that really just need someone to be an entrepreneur in maybe a different way. Like you mentioned, a local NGO or building a business that has local impact. How can the two come together? If I'm someone who's spent eight years in software development, building an enterprise SaaS company, and I want to shift into building a solution to help with climate adaptation or climate migration, the problems you and I are talking about today, How should I get smart on those issues if I don't have those lived experiences myself? That is a question that I've been asked by technologists. And as someone who grew up in the Bay Area and has lived in Silicon Valley, I will say that it sometimes does concern me when a lot of the folks here who have the technology expertise try to build solutions for problems that they have absolutely zero experience of. That is sometimes a wavering concern. However, I do think that there are solutions around that. So number one, I would say that even if you've not lived the experience as a child, you can still consciously make the effort to go and learn 
you can't ever build a technology without understanding your users or who your community is first. And if you're trying to build around climate, I would say it's more than just picking up a book of Drawdown, for example. It's more than that. It's actually going in and asking yourself, what part of climate, which community do I want to actually have a vested interest in? So that's the number one thing I would say is to find a community that you can actually go and learn and share with. And that really gives you a much more also better product in the end because you know what your community's needs are. I would say that's number one. I think number two is also working with current problems and frameworks. There are so many not-for-profits around the world that need an engineer, that need a software developer to help them. They don't have those tools and they are working on direct problems and have the direct solutions. They just don't have a way to make it more accessible or they don't have a way to expand it. So Mm -hmm. I would say find those projects where your skills could be best used instead of creating new platforms that nobody uses. Do you have suggestions on how people should go about doing that? Because I think in general, we often in our startup community almost overemphasize building something from scratch when there's a lot of really great small business solutions out there today that just could use a bit of sort of software edge to help them potentially scale and impact a lot more people, not just in the climate world, but in general. There's something like $10 trillion worth of small business ownership that is expected to transfer from retirees to younger hands over the next decade. You would think that a lot of those business opportunities could be things that you could essentially digitize and and make more modern. And I think the same holds true in the climate space, as you just mentioned, local solutions that could be digitized or could be platformized in some way, as opposed to building a platform from scratch. How should people try to find those? I don't think there are that many platforms that have every single local community work and climate work captured. I think that's sometimes that could be an issue of pipeline. But we're creating it at the plant. That's one of the programs that we want to create is for talented technologists, engineers, architects, developers who want to work on very specific based projects in either developing country or global south have an opportunity to be connected. We're trying to find that. But really, Cody, sometimes it's as easy as just going and traveling to a part of the world that you want to be in and then learning and talking to local community leaders there because many times they don't have websites or platforms and starting by traveling is a good place. Hopefully we'll all be able to do that again here soon safely, for sure. I know I miss being able to do that. You mentioned the plant. We haven't talked much about it. Do you want to share a little bit about the work you're doing there? The plant is a global home for climate solution. Our mission is to address the most pressing environmental challenges of our time through development, innovation, art, and community. 40% plus of emissions in the air annually is caused by one group of people, and that's developers and development and buildings. Buildings are at the crux of the problem of emissions in the air. And if we can actually find a way to build sustainable buildings that are net zero, we will be able to actually draw down emissions significantly. So the plant is first doing that with buildings. We are building the net zero buildings in Yonkers, two of them. And then secondly, we're also putting together and combining the inner links of climate organizations from around the world to be based out of it. And my theory is simple, Cody, every movement needs a home. Every movement needs a place to belong. And the plant is the home for climate. So it's the place where if you are a journalist and you have questions about climate, you can come in and talk to the scientist. 
if you are a foundation want to learn more about climate, if you're an individual who wants to learn more and, and teach your child, the plant will be the home for that. The plant will be the area and center for that. So this becomes a fellows or experts in residence home base for people wanting to work on climate innovation. That's correct. That's awesome. I'm curious, given all of your lived experience and given how much you know about both the troubling future that climate change will unleash on humans, life and biodiversity and and everything, but also the fact that you're working toward solutions, you're aware of people pushing for local-based change, et cetera. Do you consider yourself generally an optimist or a pessimist? Where do you fall on what the future looks like for all of us? I think a healthy bit of both is the option I would pick. (laughs) And that's also my temperament and practice as a Buddhist. I also would think that it would be hard to lead any movement or community without being an optimist. No one wants to follow a pessimistic leader. So I think by nature, I do fall more towards a healthy level of optimism. But I say healthy because I think that pessimism is also what has grounded us to be able to come together as a community to say, this is a real challenge. What are the solutions we can work on now? So I would say a combination is really the point here and the middle way is the path. But as far as climate is concerned, I am optimistic. And the reason I am optimistic is despite some of the extreme numbers and the countries that are drowning and people's lives are being wreaked by it, I really do believe that there has been a global shift towards being climate conscious in a way that I never experienced in college or high school. I used to be the one person who talked about climate change when people didn't think it was cool. Or people would tell me, okay, enough, Tenzin, you've said your piece now. Can we move on to other topics? And now it's actually a genuine concern. I have families who tell me that I care about this for my daughter, for my son. This is important to me. And to see that global shift happening from young to old gives me hope that there will be solutions and adaptations that we haven't even imagined right now. I tend to be an optimist generally, and, and I do feel that's true as much as the path that we're on, obviously, is very dire. But I feel optimistic that there are the collective minds of humanity working toward helping us solve some of these solutions and realistic to the fact that there still is going to be quite a bit of suffering along the way, unfortunately, and awfully. In terms of the storytelling and the kind of general public awareness I've had two conversations in the last week that have been really inspiring for me. One with a, I don't want to go into the details, but an extremely experienced digital media person who is turning their attention toward climate as their next project, which is, I think, awesome. Just more storytelling, more stories about climate in the mainstream, I think is great. The other is in the nonprofit that I co-founded last year, Climate Changemakers, We held a conversation recently with U.S. Representative Andy Kim from New Jersey. You probably know him well because he's a neighbor of yours, you know, statewide at least. He had a big point of view that when it comes to climate, all the storytelling that's been done so far is on the doom and gloom side. We read articles about climate and it's all about the disasters that are awaiting us and how the path to 1.5 degrees Celsius is next to impossible and this, that, and the other. And his point was, where are the stories that show what a beautiful renewable energy and localized support network around the world could look like? So yes, there are going to be horrible problems, but where are the positive stories? How can we help people have that sense of optimism? I'm curious your thoughts on that. 
I think Representative Kim is right on many fronts. First of all, I do know him because he is one of our neighbors, right, in New Jersey. I believe the third district, but more than that, he's also a Rhodes and Truman. He also went through both of those programs. And I know that he's also dedicated his life to civil service. So that's really great that you talked to him. I will say that it is true. There is almost a certain addiction to the disaster-related themes in climate. And initially, that was the way to get people's attention and to draw people's attention, but we've gotten everybody's attention and we continue still to have all of our messaging and science-based information along those lines in the mass media. And that's been a problem because people are fatigued by it. If you overwhelm the senses for years, there's only so much room for people to be able to actually digest it. So I've seen some people move away or be like, okay, I'm not getting involved in this because I've seen so much of it in my life and there's nothing I can do. And nothing could be further from the truth, actually. So for me, I really focus, even in Yonkers, which is majority minority community, I talk about the impact of climate from the perspective of their lives and how it actually impacts their air quality and the solutions we're bringing to, for example, grow food for the local community, how food even is such a vital part of climate. When I talk to them and tailor the story around opportunity, for them and the community, they're much more receptive to me than when I talk about, if you don't do this, then this will happen. I have not seen anyone that has responded positively to the consequential threat problem. Mm -hmm. I see much more people who respond to me positively when they're like, the plant story is a positive story. It is a visionary story of rebuilding our buildings, our systems to be regenerative, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's the best way I've been able to approach this community. That's awesome. And actually leads me into the last topic I wanted to chat with you about on the subject just generally of environmental justice. We talked a lot about transborder migration and adaptation from that perspective. And Techstars is a global platform and we work with entrepreneurs all around the world. You and I also both live here in the United States of America. And United States of America is not in the global South. We're responsible for, sadly, a lot of the emissions that have caused this global crisis. And yet, locally in the United States, there are clearly pockets of the United States where the detriments of climate change are more pronounced. This is where I would source one of my colleagues, Rihanna Gunwright, who helped architect the Green New Deal. She's now at the Roosevelt Institute, and she discusses this issue of, in the United States, when you go in external countries, you think of U.S. as the second emitter of carbon dioxide only to China, and you almost associate it with every single person there must be emitting the bulk of the emissions. And that's actually not true. A lot of it's with corporates and with our infrastructure. And so those decisions are oftentimes made by people who have very similar backgrounds and people who've been in industry that's been of extracting. I always say that it's don't blame the people, blame the system. The system is what has caused it. And within the United States, you see the injustices so brutally, even in Flint, Michigan, even the water there, that there's been impacts of lead in some of the younger folks who've been brought up there in the last 10 to 15 years because of the high levels of red rising. And the levels of injustices within the United States in terms of climate impact is astonishing. And most people in the U.S. actually don't have any idea about it either. And we've done a very poor job as a community of actually making sure that justice and equality in America is a part of the dialogue as well. And 
I think that it would change. I do think focusing on the solutions, it would change if every developer, for example, had to do a community-based agreement where they had to also promise what would be the impact for the community and how they can give back to the community. A, that would change. B, if every corporation had to do something similar for their local community to include local stakeholders in their committees, in their meetings, in their diligence processes, I don't think we would see the same levels of impact. Yeah. So just land can't just be bought and sold from one hand to another without the input of people who are yeah. going to be near whatever project is going to be built on right. land. Right. Because I'm not interested in just talking about the problem. I'm interested in the solution. And I have right. seen that in certain areas. I've seen now the people of in Flint, Michigan actually demand that they're now part of these advisory groups that impact their community. And they have a vested interest If we had an infrastructure around this, I do think there could be mitigations that the community can reach. Thank you, Tenzin. And I guess the last question I have for you, which is, if you could narrow it down, what's one piece of advice you have for entrepreneurs embarking on a climate-focused endeavor? Two things. I would say first is don't pretend to care. You just have to show up. Because a lot of times there is a pressure to care about something because it is a hot topic or is a sexy trend of the year. And if you're doing the climate-based work with your expertise based on that, it won't last long. So actually show up to those communities and do the work that's required. And there's no replacement for that. And then the second advice I would give is find the projects that really is well-suited to your ethos and to your expertise And make sure you ask the input multiple times because you may end up building something that's not of use and that would not be worth your time. So if you're going towards a climate-centered project in another part of the world or you're working on something that you haven't touched before, constantly seek feedback. Don't be shy to seek feedback. Thank you so much. Just really appreciate you taking the time today to chat with us and share both your personal experiences as well as those that you've learned and aggregated over the years of your time and attention in this area. Thank you, Tenzin. Thank you so much, Cody. Thank you for having me on this podcast. Thanks so much for listening today. We really hope you enjoyed the discussions. Check out the episode notes for links and more information. See you in the next episode of the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast.